can turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27, as we near the final verses of Matthew's Gospel. We looked last week at the death of Jesus. And here, in these next few verses, Matthew records what happens. The significant aftershocks of the death of Jesus. I'll be reading Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've seen the new Disney movie, Encanto. I know my kids have. Many, 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 many times. It's introduced to a character in the beginning named Mirabelle. Mirabelle Madrigal. Now, Mirabelle is born into a, a family that has a special enchantment about every, every member of the family, when they reach a certain age, they receive a magical power or gift that they then use to help the community. And you, you spend your childhood leading up to this moment, and you're wondering, what, what's my gift going to be? What, what am I going to get? What can I do to help? And we're introduced to Mirabelle, who is who's at that moment in her life when she's going to receive her gift. It's something you look forward to, and everybody's excited about and anticipating. And as we later find out in the movie, Mirabelle didn't get a gift. For whatever reason, she was excluded. Unlike the rest of her family, she got nothing. And so that, that moment that she'd been waiting for and that everything in her life had been leading up to just ends up being disappointment. And, and in that sense, the movie connects with, I believe, every, every person. Because we have all had something in our life that we looked forward to. Something we anticipated. Something that, that maybe we built it up in our minds or in our hearts or other people built it up for us. And when the moment arrived, it either didn't materialize, it just didn't happen, it fell through, or it just disappointed. It didn't work out the way we thought it would. It didn't feel the way we thought it would. You know, for, for Jesus as the Messiah, there were so many expectations building up and leading up to Him and what He would do for His people. And God, in His Word, had promised many things and given His people many wonderful expectations of what would happen when the Messiah came. The, the age of the Messiah would be amazing. And we see it again and again in Scripture, all the things that would happen. There would be peace on earth. There would be victory, military and political victory for God's people. The blind would see, the lame would walk, everything wrong would be made right when the Messiah came. And Matthew has been building up this idea that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. And at the same time, he's been building up his gospel and leading towards the crucifixion which would be the one thing no one expected of the Messiah. Though they should have, they didn't. 
And so now that, now that that moment has arrived, as we just saw last week, as Jesus dies on the cross and, breathe, cross and breathes his last, yielding up his spirit, the, the question is, will it be worth the hype? Everything we've been waiting for, will it, will it disappoint? Or will all of our expectation, now that the time has come, the time has come for the age of the Messiah, will it fulfill the expectations of God's people? And so immediately after recording Jesus' last breath, Matthew gives us three signs, three indications, boom, 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 one after another, that yes, indeed, God is not going to disappoint. All the expectations of the Messiah and the new age that the Messiah brings will be fulfilled, and they begin to be fulfilled the moment that Jesus dies on the cross. Now, Matthew's not recording chronological events here. He records three things that happen, but they're a little out of order in time. But Matthew lumps them together for a purpose because they all point to the same thing as we just sang. His promises still stand. All that God has said will be true and all that we're waiting for and expecting will come true. So what can we expect of the Messiah, of the Savior that God has sent now that He has given up His life? And we as God's people today who still carry about the expectations of what God will do How do we know that He will fulfill what we expect and hope He will do? And there are three things we're going to look at, and I have to be honest, each one of them deserves its own sermon. But I'm going to do it in one. You get a three-for-one deal today. And the first thing that we see that God fulfills now that the time of the Messiah has come is that relationship with God will be restored. Relationship with God will be restored. The first thing Matthew mentions immediately after Jesus dies in verse 51, he says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. To a 21st century Florida resident, that's interesting. But, eh, I'd be more concerned about my own curtains tearing in my house. To a first century Jew in Palestine, that's earth shattering. And to a Christian in any age, in any place, it's significant and we need to understand why. We talked last week about the importance of Adam and Eve being made in the image of God. And the purpose of their creation was to have that fellowship with God. And yet, though it was very good in God's good creation with them and their relationship with God, they were tempted. And when they chose the way of the tempter, when they chose to say, my way, not God's way, There were consequences. They lost the fellowship with God that they were made to have. And the same we saw last week, the same is true of us today. Made to connect with God. We yearn for that. We desire that. We seek that out. But our sin keeps us separated from Him. And in Genesis 3.23, we see the consequence. The Lord sends Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which He was taken. But notice this, and this is something we miss a lot when we talk about this. We, we picture Adam and Eve being banished to some great punishment in God's anger. But if we back up, we see it's really an act of God's mercy to them. Let's back up to verse 32 of Genesis 3. The Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's happening there is that Adam and Eve, having sinned, are now dead in their sin. They're separated from God and they cannot unite with Him. And God says, if they take from the tree of life and eat that fruit, they will live forever. But they will forever be separated from Me. They will forever be lost in their sins. And I can't let that happen. And so God, in banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, was acting in mercy to protect His people from being lost forever. He banishes them from the garden until such a day as their sin is removed from them in Christ Jesus. And as he banishes them, look what he does. He sets a cherubim with a flaming sword. Now, if you ever see pictures of cherubim, if you do a Google search, it's probably going to be like a, a chubby little angel with like tiny little wings. and you know, That's not a cherubim. We're talking giant, angelic, flaming figures whose job it is to keep you away from the presence of God, lest you be dead in His presence. That's what blocked the way back to the presence of God. So God in mercy blocks the way back because it would not be life but death. Pastor, what does any of this have to do with the temple curtain that you're talking about, which I still don't understand how it relates to me today? Hang in there. Because hundreds of years after Adam and Eve as God delivers His people from Egypt and sends them into the desert, He gives them, in addition to the Ten Commandments, He gives them instructions, detailed, hyper-detailed instructions, as everybody who's tried to read the Bible in a year discovers when they get to the middle of Exodus, detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle, the place where God will meet with His people. His presence will actually be in the tabernacle, in the central place, the Holy of Holies. No one may approach without blood, without a sacrifice, or they will die. And in order to protect His people from the, the holy presence of God, He tells them to put up, in front of the most holy place, a curtain. And that same structure was repeated in the temple hundreds of years later. And listen to Exodus 26, how God described the artwork on the curtain. Exodus 26, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. Now, the, the tabernacle temple was so immensely symbolic in its architecture that I don't have time to get into it, but that most holy place was designed to, to symbolize and represent the Garden of Eden where God dwelled perfectly in fellowship with man. And what blocks the way? The veil, the curtain, with the cherubim and the flaming sword saying, keep out or you will die. That's the curtain that was torn the moment Christ died. The priest couldn't even go in without a sacrifice for his sin and for the sins of the people. But the prophets pointed to a day when sin would be forgiven so thoroughly and so completely that we would not need an intermediator. We wouldn't, we wouldn't need a priest to go in behind the curtain. We wouldn't even need a curtain because we would know God. We heard that in our assurance of pardon from Jeremiah 31. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
And I'll remember their sins no more. And so now, as Jesus, the, the last, the true, the real sacrifice dies, something incredible happens. That curtain that has kept the people of God from His presence and that has, even in its art, reminded them that we are banished from the presence of God. That curtain is torn in two. Not from bottom to top as if two people were ripping it. But from top to bottom because it is God Himself who makes the way back to Him. And again, that's all very interesting and neat. But what does it have to do with us today? Well, the author of Hebrews picks up on this idea. He takes that Jeremiah verse that we just looked at. I will forgive their sins and remember their iniquity no more. And he, com- he takes that with the imagery of the temple veil, the curtain, and the most holy place and combines them with the image of Jesus on the cross. And listen to how he applies it to us today. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the Jeremiah quote from Hebrews 10. Where there is forgiveness of our sins and our lawless acts, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's what you do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. If God ripped the curtain and said, I have forgiven your sins and the way is now open for you to come back. And the author of Hebrews says, there is therefore no longer any offering for sin. And some of you are thinking, well, silly pastor, I never make an offering for my sin. I'm not out there sacrificing goats and bulls and doves and things like the Old Testament said to do. Well, of course you're not. But I I challenge you to consider that you in your heart think you still have to do something to make God happy. There's still something you need to do before God will accept you as His child. Even though we just confessed our faith from Ephesians 1 this morning saying that no, He picked us to be adopted and He made it happen. I would suggest that there's, for many of us, still something in our heart that is trying to make some offering for sin. And in ripping the curtain, God says there's nothing you can do. There's no offering, no morality, no deeds, not your money, not your time, not your promises, not even your faith. None of that is an offering that you give to God in order to enter His presence. No, God has brought you in. He ripped the curtain and brought you in. Therefore, enter with confidence, with joy, with full assurance of faith. When you understand that, it doesn't make you uh, lazy. It doesn't make you say, well, I don't have to do anything. No, when you actually understand what God has done and the, and the relationship He has restored with Jesus through Jesus with Himself, that makes you emboldened. That makes you stronger to live the way He wants you to live. Because there's nothing you can do to make Him happy that hasn't already been done in Christ. So now just joyfully do the things that He calls you to do. Not in fear, but in joy. So that's the first sign, the first indication that God keeps the promises that He's made of the the new age. The next is that death will be defeated. 
Relationship is restored and death is defeated. We see in verses 51 through 53, the earth shook. The rocks were split. You know, earthquakes are a sign of, of significant events in Scripture and in other cultures. But then we see that the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There's some ambiguity in the timeline, but it seems to be like this. Jesus died, and immediately there's an earthquake. The ground shakes, the sky is dark, and as the ground shakes, rocks break open, and even the tombs where people are buried are breaking open around Jerusalem. And then, when Jesus rises from the dead days later, the bodies of some of these people, righteous men and women who had faithfully served God and were in their tombs, they rise up from the dead and go into the city and talk to people. That's crazy, right? Well, not much crazier than Jesus rising from the dead. So we have to believe, if you believe the one, you can believe the other. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you can believe that he also raised others from the dead, as he did Lazarus, as he did the widow's son. And they kind of like follow the leader out out of the grave after Jesus. And I want to be clear from the get-go, this is not a symbolic resurrection. This is not some zombie resurrection where they're just decaying dead bodies walking around. And it's not a spiritual resurrection where it's ghosts kind of floating around and, boo, visiting their old families. No, this is just as Jesus, just as Lazarus. These are the bodies and souls brought back from death by the power of God. Why? Like, what do we make of this? What do we do with it? Well, just as with the curtain being torn, we we had to look back to Genesis to, to understand its role in what God is doing. We have to go back to Genesis for this as well. Because the consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was not just banishment, but also death. They introduced death into the world. In Genesis 2, God had warned them, from the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. In Genesis 3, after they eat of it, he says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, we accept, typically, we accept death as a normal part of life. I mean, we don't like it, we mourn it, we grieve it, we hate it. But when somebody dies, we don't go, What? Somebody died? How could that be? You know, we've, many of us were raised on Lion King, you know, Simba. Death is just a part of the circle of life. I did a horrible Mufasa. Death is a part of the circle of life. Yeah, that's wrong. That, that's not true. The Bible says death is an enemy. Death is an intruder. It's an aberration. It should not happen. It's not a part of how God designed us or his creation. Death's an enemy. And so if God is going to restore things the way they ought to be, death must die. Death is the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus has to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that he's going to destroy forever is death. Death will be no more. Now, Matthew includes this account of other people, not just Jesus, but others rising from the dead for two reasons. Number one, because it happened. And holy cow, we have to talk about that. I mean, that's that's amazing. And, and Matthew, in, get, in interviewing people to write his gospel, he's, he's talking to other people in the church who said, yeah, you wouldn't believe this. The day Jesus rose from the dead, you know, my great aunt Susie showed up. And she'd been dead 15 years. It was amazing. And she told us this, and that, that God had had the power to conquer death. 
You know, so he's hearing this from people, and he's got to tell us about it. But the other reason is to show us that in Jesus, God's plan is full steam ahead. It's all happening. It's working. His plan to conquer death is working. The barrier between God and humanity has been breached because Jesus, and we can now return to him and be sure that even death will not separate us. And so not only does Jesus rise from the dead, which would have been awesome enough in itself, but others rise as well. Jesus lives and so shall I, we sing at times. Because his resurrection is an appetizer of what's to come. Right? You know, my kids and I, we planted some seeds. I guess it was just one week ago. We planted some seeds in our yard, three separate bins, three separate things we planted. And I promptly forgot what was put in each one. I mean immediately. I don't know which bin has what. One of them is going to be cantaloupe. One of them is going to be cilantro, and one of them is going to be some flour I don't remember the name of that our lizard likes to eat. When will I know what they are? When they start to produce. The first fruits tell you what the harvest will be. They show you what to expect. Jesus, Scripture says, is the first fruits of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which means those who've died. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has also come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order, however. Christ the firstfruits, and then when he returns, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. And raising those bodies from the dead, along with Christ's resurrection, he gives us a sneak peek and an assurance that that is Definitely the plan, and it's definitely happening. And again, I want to remind you, we're not talking about ghosts. We're not talking about disembodied spirits. That's not our resurrection. You know, come to Sunday school next week. We're going to be talking about this at 10 o'clock. Now, what is the new heavens like? What is heaven and earth like? Is it some floaty cloud place where we're disembodied souls with white robes and harps? No. No. How do we know that? Well, in 1 John 3, the apostle tells us that um, we're God's children now, but what we will be, we don't know. It hasn't yet appeared. But what we do know is that we're going to be like Jesus. When he appears, we shall be like him. Our resurrection is going to be like his resurrection. He ate and drank and walked through walls sometimes, it seems. He had scars. He was recognized. He had a body. He could be touched. Our resurrection will be like his. He's the first fruits. So what? Well, the main application of this, aside from the hope it brings us, is don't let death tell you how to live. How many people live their lives in fear of death and make their decisions based on fear of death? That it will come too soon or it won't come for a long time. We live with death in mind and we make our choices based on that. The Bible says Jesus Jesus died and rose again to deliver us from being captive to the fear of death. Well, there's one more thing that we see that God shows us how His plan is on track. He restores our relationship with Him. He defeats death. And then Matthew shows us that the nations will know. The nations will know the Lord 
In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now again, that might not jump out at you quite the same way that bodies of dead people walking around might strike you as odd, but this is significant. And guess what book we have to go back to to see why? Any guesses? Genesis. Because Genesis shows us what God's plan was from the beginning, the plan that he's going to restore and carry out in the end. God's plan from the beginning has not been to bless one tiny group of people, one nation. His plan has been to bless everyone. And we saw in Genesis in the Tower of Babel, how, uh, let's take that down for a minute, how um, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, how all the nations uh, in rising up together uh, were in danger because of the power of their sin. And God, in mercy, divided them up into different languages, different tribes, different nations, and they spread off throughout the world. And, and God zeroes in on one family after that. Right after that, he picks Abram and Abram's family. And then Genesis 12, 3, he says to Abram, who becomes Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you, because of you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not some families, not just the Israelites, not just Western Europeans, all the families of earth. And yet, from that point on, most of the Old Testament focuses on the descendants of Abraham and, and God's plan through them to bring about this Messiah, this Deliverer, Jesus. And yet God never loses sight of the nations because He is not the God of Israel only. He is the God of the universe. And even the prophets keep before us the mindset of God that it's not just about one people, it's about all peoples. In Isaiah 49, God says to His servant, It is too light a thing that you, the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved Israel. No, that's not enough. That's too small. That's dreaming small. Here's what I want you to do. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And yet, even Jesus focuses His work on Israel. He never leaves Palestine. He works only with ethnic Jews. His disciples, His immediate followers are Jews. His disciples didn't understand when they brought non-Jews into the conversation. And then just before the Last Supper, Two Greeks, non-Jewish people, come up and they try to work some connections to get to Jesus. And they talk to a disciple. And they say, hey, we've got to talk to this guy. This seems to be something bigger than you realize. And so the disciples ask Jesus, hey, there's some, some Greeks that want to talk to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it's not the time for that. The time has come for me to die. But, he says in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up in the earth, and whenever he says that, that means when I am crucified, and resurrected. When I am lifted up in the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All people. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says, look, when I'm crucified, that's when the kingdom of God starts to draw in everybody else. That's when the doors fling open and I become a light to the nations and to the ends of the earth. And then look what happens. Immediately after he dies, the earth shakes. And a Roman centurion says, this must be the Son of God. Okay, does he have a fully developed faith? Is he, when he says that, is he saying, this must be the second person of the divine trinity sent to save us by dying for our sin? No, that's not what he's saying. 
But in some way, he is revealed to him that this is no man. This is the Son of God. And the gospel begins with that Roman centurion to expand to the nations. The third promise of God, the sign that His promises still stand and are being fulfilled in the Messiah, is that the Gentiles, the nations beyond Israel, will turn to Him as King. Now what, what again, so what? I keep asking that today because we're talking about stuff that happened a long time ago. What does that mean for us today? You ever had durian, the fruit? Okay, some of you have, okay. You, you know what I'm about to talk about. Okay. Durian is a beloved fruit, especially in uh, Singapore and Malaysia and some other areas in, in, in that part of the world. <laughs> it smells like rotten diapers, okay? And yet the people who eat it love it. It's, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's so bad, so foul, that, that, that when you go to hotels in Singapore and Malaysia, there are literal signs on the door saying, no durian. You can't bring it in the building because it fills the air and it's, it's wretched. Okay, maybe you haven't had durian, but have you ever tried something, a food from another culture that you're just like, they just tell you it's the greatest haggis you know, or kimchi or maybe something that, that some culture just loves and, and you just think, no, sorry, can't do it. I respect you, but no. Or maybe it's a style of music. Like, you, you know, maybe you've seen one of your grandkids or kids and they're just like really into this. This is worship music. This is awesome. And you're just like, I can't listen to another second. Or a movie. Like, I, I, I've stopped encouraging people to watch my favorite movie because every single person, even my wife, that I've shown it to is like, I'll never get those 30 minutes back. Like... <laughs> How do you, how is that funny? The only other people who liked it were my parents. I don't know, something genetic in us. There are things that we praise and that we love, and their appeal is limited. Only a certain type of people like durian. Only a certain type of people like that kind of music or that activity. But when you find that food, that everyone says, regardless of their culture, their nationality, their history, their upbringing, they all say, wow, that's good. Or that music that doesn't matter where you're from or what you're used to, when you hear it, you go, okay, I feel it. I really do. Okay, when there's a, a breadth of praise, its beauty is magnified. And that is Jesus. Jesus is not just appealing to one country, to one culture, to one type of people. No. The extent of the praise he receives reveals how great he is. So Revelation 7, we don't just see one type of people, one nation, one language singing his praise. No, we see as we sang earlier in Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Do you know how hard it is to get every nation to agree on anything? To get someone from every nation to agree on one thing? Every nation, all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on His throne and to the Lamb. A God that is praised by every tribe, tongue, and nation must be 
beautiful, worthy, better than anything we can imagine. And so after his resurrection, as we're going to see in a few weeks, Jesus commands his disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples not just of the people like you, but of all nations. And that day will come. Despite how it seems today, the day will come when, like Philippians 2, we see that every knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. And these promises, these assurances might seem a little hollow to us today because it's been 2,000 years, right? And despite the razzle-dazzle of everything that happened right after Jesus died, things have fizzled out a little bit. And we haven't seen these things be fulfilled in the way that we'd like to. And I was trying to think of how to describe kind of the position we're in, and what kept coming to my mind was dominoes. You know, if you've ever set up dominoes to like to be in a line and you, you push one and it knocks over a whole line of them, man, I was... Okay, I was an introvert growing up, so I did a lot of jigsaw puzzles and I played with a lot of dominoes. And I'd, I, you know, you'd set up hundreds and even thousands of them, and they'd go. You get them to go up steps and down steps, and you get them to drop off heights, and you get them to split up, and you get them to fall so that they make words and patterns. And a lot of time. Um, and the idea is that if you do it right, if you set it up right, all you have to do is boop. You hit the first one. The first one hits the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, and it goes on and it finishes. Now, if you're human, like me, and you're not a domino expert, chances are you've got to go in somewhere and hit it again and hit it again. But, but the picture I want you to have is that God has set things up so perfectly, so completely, so fully, that as Christ dies, it's just that little boop, and the dominoes start falling. And they don't stop. And, and we're, not, we're not at the point where we're waiting for it to start falling. You know, we, it's already begun. And we're not yet at the point where everything is finished and we've seen the beautiful picture that it makes and it's all worked out. We're in the already and not yet phase. It's already started, but it's not yet done. Because, yes, Jesus died and restored our relationship with God. The veil is torn. And yet we don't see him face to face, do we? And so our prayers have joy and boldness and confidence, but also frustration and silence because we're not yet there. Death is defeated and we're no longer captive to the fear of death, but our bodies still decay and hurt. And people we love die and we too, most of us will someday die if the Lord doesn't return first. The nations will know that He is Lord and so we proclaim with boldness and we support missions and we're passionate about that and we want to bring people of every culture and ethnicity and we want everyone to worship together. But many still reject Him. Not every knee is bowed to Him and racial division still is everywhere. But what we know and what gives us hope is that the dominoes are falling. Right? When Jesus died on the cross, it started. And it's set in motion things that cannot be undone. And we will see them. Because God's plan is perfect. So as 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 assures us, every one of God's promises finds their yes in Him, in Jesus. Therefore, through Jesus, we say amen to the glory of God. Amen? amen. We're not there yet, brothers and sisters. 
that the dominoes are falling and they will not stop. We have, as we're going to sing in a moment, we have a foretaste of our deliverance. And that foretaste gives us an unwavering hope. So let us pray and let us sing together. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you have set in motion things that cannot be undone, that cannot be stopped. And because of that, we rejoice. We also pray, Heavenly Father, because we know we're easily distracted, we forget easily, and it's easy for us to lose hope, especially when our desires don't match what we see and what you've promised. So we pray that you would give us an unwavering hope, a faith that perseveres. Do this by the power of your Spirit at work in us. And we thank you for what you've accomplished on the cross, that our relationship to you has been restored and we add nothing to it. Death has been defeated and we are no longer captive and the nations will know. We rejoice in these things in our Savior's name. Amen.